0: Take your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the uh, rows in front of you under the seats that you'd be welcome to use. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're continuing in our study of this letter that Paul wrote. Today I'm going to be talking about a question that many people have, and it's the question, What happens when we die? What happens when we die? Listen to what Paul writes here beginning at verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of your word this morning, We ask that you would help us to concentrate on what you want to say today. Pray that we could put away the distractions of the week coming up or maybe things that have happened in this past week and really think about eternity and what happens when we die, what awaits all of us in the future, so that we might live in a way that pleases you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I see by the clock that this morning I'm going to have a little bit of extra time, and that's actually good because I was uh, concerned in this message. There is so much here to put into it that there's a lot I want to share with you this morning. So we're going to try to walk through this passage today as we address a very good question of what happens when we die. George Barna has surveyed the American public for many years now, And he tells us that when he asks that question of people in America, what do they think is going to happen after we die? It is surprising, but 86% of Americans believe that God will judge every individual. That message has gotten across. That 86% believe that God is going to judge every individual. The interesting thing about that, though, is that almost everyone believes that they will be just fine. And it's somebody else that's going to be in trouble when it comes to that judgment. Isn't that kind of the way that we are? About six out of ten believe that salvation or getting to heaven is earned by our character or good behavior. About six out of ten believe that, you know, basically if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're going to go to heaven. It's kind of God grades on a scale or a curve and then that's how it is. And then there is a growing tendency to believe that all good people, whether or not they consider Jesus Christ to be their Savior, will live in heaven after they die on earth. that's interesting. Almost half of the people in our country believe that it really doesn't matter whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ. As long as you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. Now where do people get those beliefs? I mean, where does that come from? That doesn't come from the Scripture. So where does that belief or understanding come from? Well, I think that one of the dominant influences in people's thinking today is Hollywood. It's the media around us. And we are influenced by that, or people are influenced by that more than perhaps they think. A number of years ago, Carl F.H. Henry, who's a senior spokesman, he's gone on to be with the Lord since, but he was a senior evangelical statesman, and he said this. He said that the movies increasingly banner that death is not final. They tell us that a spirit world is in store for us without God, without judgment, without need of grace, without bodily resurrection, without fear of hell. And therefore, we can feel better about this worldly licentiousness and greed because a pleasant karma awaits us all. That's kind of the message of the movies and of Hollywood. You know, you're going to die, and it really doesn't matter how you live, and you go on into this pleasant world. You know, if you ever saw the ending of the movie Titanic, you know, where all those that died just stayed on the ship, and the party goes on. And that's sort of the idea that Hollywood has, that you're just going to continue and life's going to be fine and there's, there's no judgment, there's no real heaven and hell in the sense of the way the Bible describes it. You just live on in this spirit world. Well, I can tell you that it's very dangerous to build your theology on what Hollywood says. Even among world religions, Christianity is unique in what it teaches about the afterlife. I mean, if you look at the different world religions, and many people don't take the time to do that, they just kind of sort of believe they're all the same somehow. But if you look at world religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, believe in reincarnation. And they believe that man must go through an endless succession of painful lives before one can be free to merge for eternity with the world soul in a state that's known as nirvana. Nirvana. You just kind of keep coming back. You've got to keep coming back over and over again and work through this endless succession of suffering and evil and pain in our world until somehow you are enlightened and can achieve this state of nirvana where you unite with this world soul. There is no personal God. There's no personal future for the individual. It's basically nothingness. And I wonder about those who, say, are Hollywood stars who would promote this or others who, you know, kind of think this is a good thing somehow, these Eastern religions, if they have ever really looked at it and understood what it teaches about the future. It is so very, very different from what Christianity teaches. When you look at Islam, Islam believes in a heaven and hell, but heaven is more of a male paradise You know, you have to earn your way there through the different things that you're asked to do as a part of the Islamic faith. And the only way you can really ensure that you're going to go to heaven is to die in jihad. And so when you have young males that are recruited who are told that if they die in jihad, they are going to have a bevy of young virgins that are going to surround them for eternity, you know, for some of these young males, that's kind of like, okay, that's, That sounds like a pretty good thing to me. They are promised, or the faithful are promised, the companionship of young and beautiful women for eternity. Jehovah Witnesses, they say that only the 144,000 that are mentioned in the book of Revelation will reign with Christ in heaven. The rest do not experience that kind of full uh, experience in eternity they are separated in a different location from Christ and his reign. I remember one time I had an older couple who were Jehovah Witnesses standing on our doorstep and I was talking to them and I understood what they believe about eternity and I know what the scripture teaches about eternity. And I asked them if they thought they were going to be in that 144,000 and they said, we don't know. Nobody knows. What do you think your future is going to be like? You know, and I'm talking about that. And then I said, can I share with you what I believe from the Scriptures? And I talked about being able to be confident that when we die, we will go into the very presence of the Lord, we will see Jesus, and we will be with Him for all of eternity and explain what the Scripture teaches. And there was this look of sadness on their face because, I mean, their future is just uncertain. And they don't know what they're going to experience and what it's going to be like. The Bible teaches very differently that we can know what awaits us. Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, believe that a bodily resurrection is going to occur to a threefold heaven. There's a celestial, a terrestrial, and a celestial heaven, as they describe it, and the highest level is for Mormons. And even in that highest level, there are three divisions there, and the only way that you can ensure that you're going to be at the highest level is to be married in a Mormon temple and go through their ritual and their special ceremony there. And so it's sort of this, you know, ranking that as you uh, do these things, you know, you can climb the ladder until you are at this highest level. It's different. It's not the same for everyone in terms of being able to experience heaven in the way that the bible describes it now the source for these different uh, groups is the book the kingdom of the cults by walter martin you can check that out and you can take a look at all of these different religions and many others and you will find the differences they teach about eternity and about what happens when we die so what does the scripture say That's what we want to look at this morning. That's where we want to base our confidence and our faith on what God has said in His Word. And He doesn't answer every question that we may have. He doesn't tell us everything about it, but He tells us enough that we can be confident of what awaits us in the future. It's kind of like when we as parents are maybe telling our kids about Christmas, you know, and what's to come. You know, we don't tell them everything until they get there, you know, but they just know this is going to be a pretty good deal, and so they're excited about it. It's like that in terms of what God has told us on what is to come in the future. Number one, this passage of Scripture tells us that we will receive a new glorified body. A new glorified body. And we see that in verses 1 to 5. Paul says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Paul uses the term tent to describe this earthly body, our present earthly body. And you can think about that. I mean, Paul was a tent maker. He worked with tents. He knew what tents were like. It's pretty easy for him to use that as an illustration. Tents are temporary structures. They are portable. They wear out. They need repair. And that's a pretty good description of our human body. You know, when we think about this earthly body, it is portable. It's those subject to wear and tear, and it's fragile. And, you know, all of those things are true of our personal earthly body. I think about our family, Uh, we would go camping every year in the summer with friends, and we had the same tent that we used for about 20 years, big old Eureka tent for a family, and we'd pull that thing out, you know, and we'd set it up and the poles and all that stuff that you got to do when you set those tents up, and we had a lot of fun camping through the years, and basically it kept us dry and sheltered, you know, in storms, There were some windy nights where we were a little concerned about it or hard downpours where you're wondering, is everything going to stay dry? But through the years, this tent began to wear out. I mean, it had some patches on it. It had gotten some tears. It was stained. Zippers started to go on it. And eventually, it just needed to be replaced. That's what our earthly body is like. We use this body. It serves us well. But, you know, as we get older it starts to suffer from some wear and tear, doesn't it? There are things that fail in our body, things that need to be replaced in our body sometimes, or wear out. And one day, this present earthly body is going to be laid aside in the grave. And Paul says that when that happens in the future, we will receive a new glorified body, a new body made by God Himself, It will be a glorified body like our Lord's resurrection body. Man was made to live in a physical body. Man was not made to live as a spirit forever. We were made to live in a physical body, and one day we will live on a new earth when God makes all things new. And what a glorious future that is. And he tells us that this body that is being made by God himself, he calls it a building in contrast to a tent. It is solid. It's permanent. It is imperishable. It is immortal. It is not made by human hands. It is made by our creator who will make all things new. And when we say it is like our Lord's glorified body, remember when He appeared to the disciples after His death and resurrection? You know, He could eat. He could fellowship with Him. They recognized Him. They could see Him. He said, touch me, you know, and see. I mean, this is a real body. I'm not a spirit. They could see what their future also would be like. The only question that... Christians disagree on in this area is really the timing of when we get that new body. And there are some who believe that uh, we receive that new glorified body at the moment we die. Most Christians believe there will be an intermediate state. That's what I believe. Where when we die, our soul goes to heaven, but we await the final resurrection, which is still to come in the future. That we will receive our new glorified body at that same time with other believers, according to 1 Corinthians 15:51 to 54, and 1 Thessalonians 4:13 to 18. Both of those passages talk about when the last trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will be raised. Those who are alive at that time will be translated immediately when our Lord comes back. And there will be this change in the twinkling of an eye. But it is at that time that we will receive our resurrected, glorified body. Another example that supports that is really in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. There is the picture of the souls of the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs who are in heaven, seen under the altar in that description in heaven crying out, How long, O Lord? How long until You return and establish Your kingdom and avenge our blood on the earth? The souls of the martyrs are waiting that day of the resurrection and our glorification. And in our spirit, we long for that. When you understand what is to come, when you understand our heavenly home and our new glorified body that is to come, We long for that day. I mean, don't you? When you see the frailty of this human earthly body, I mean, don't you long for that day when you will have this new glorified body that will be free from sickness and disease. It's not going to get tired. It's not going to get weary. It's not going to struggle with aches and pains and all those things that are part of this life. I can't wait. I mean, I... Just as an example, you know, this past week I went to see a doctor for my foot that's been bothering me, plantar fasciitis. You know, and the the sad reality is as I get older here, I'm probably not going to be able to run anymore. Anything that's pounding is not good for me. And I thought about that, and I I verbalized for the first time to our staff here at church, you know what, I'm probably not going to be able to run again until heaven, until I get that new body. And there there are things like that in our life that we start to see as we get older and we await what is to come in that day. I think of those who have been disabled in this life, those who have lost an arm or a leg or those who have had some kind of tragic injury. What a joy for them when they get to heaven and they are able to run and dance and leap and shout for joy. There is a glorious future that awaits us. Why do we groan in this body? It is because God has made us that way. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, the Scripture says that He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has set eternity in the hearts of all men. I mean, that's why you can go to just about any culture or people group in the world and they have a belief in an afterlife. That there has got to be something more beyond this grave. There's got to be something. I, I've been doing some reading recently on the, the Vikings. You know, I have an interest in uh, Scandinavian history, and so I've been reading about the Vikings and their belief in the afterlife and why they buried people in these longboats with their possessions so that they could take them along with them into eternity was their thought. It's very much like the pharaohs in Egypt who buried their treasure with them thinking somehow they could take that with them. But they were wrong. You can't take any of that stuff from this world with us into eternity. But that understanding that there's more to come, that there's a life beyond the grave, that is universal because God has put that in our hearts. The thing is that men can't understand that without a work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the truth of the Scripture and what God has planned for us in the future. And so we come to His Word to find out what that is going to be like. God must reveal it to us. The other reason we long for it is because God has given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge or a down payment on what is to come. The word there in Greek is erabon, and it's a very interesting word, you know, this idea of pledge or down payment. It's like we think of a down payment means, you know, you're, you're stating claim, and you're going to finish the payment. You're going to buy the house, you put the down payment down, you intend to pay the whole thing, and it's yours. In modern Greek, this word erabon now means engagement ring. Kind of the same idea. You give an engagement ring because you are making a promise of your love and you are going to be married and that is going to happen in the future and you have a date set for your wedding. What God has said is that He has given us. God has given us His word, His down payment, His promise that these things are true and they are coming. And that down payment is the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer. It is that Holy Spirit who is the one who is renewing us, that inner renewal we talked about last Sunday. It's the Holy Spirit who is perfecting us and at work on the inside to change us. And what's happening here is you have this process of that inner renewal that takes place in this life for the believer where we grow to be more and more like Christ. And what is going to happen in the future is that one day this glorification of us as a believer and the receiving of our new heavenly body will come together and we will be perfect on the inside and the outside, free from sin, made in the image of God our Creator. Adam's original image, restored. What a glorious day awaits us you can understand why Paul would write about these things as an encouragement to the believers in Corinth. The Holy Spirit is the foretaste of heaven, and he is at work continually reminding us, encouraging us, teaching us about these things. So what happens in between when we die? Well, as I said, we go immediately and consciously into the presence of our Lord, When a believer dies, their spirit leaves the body, goes immediately, consciously into the presence of our Lord, awaiting the resurrection of the body. We see that in verses 6 to 8 here when Paul says, he describes kind of these two options for the believer. He says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, and we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So here Paul describes two options for the believer. Either we are at home in the body on earth, or we are present with the Lord in heaven. And in either case, we are with the Lord. It's just that we can't see him with our eyes in this life. I mean, He has promised when we ask Christ to be our Savior and Lord, He's promised He will never leave us nor forsake us. He comes to live within us, gives us His Holy Spirit. We have this fellowship with Him. But in this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust Him. We believe Him. We sense Him at work in us. We feel the conviction of His Word. We see the truth of it. So we have a real experience with A real, living Christ. But one day, that's going to change. And we won't have to walk by faith. We will walk by sight. And we will see Him just as He is. And we will become like Him. And Paul says, you know, if you ask me my preference, I'd rather be with the Lord. I'd rather be with the Lord, quite honestly, I mean, who wouldn't, as a believer, when you understand, again, what awaits us in the future, why wouldn't we want to go and be with Christ? The only reason we'd really want to stay is for the sake of others and for uh, ministry that we can have here in His name. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 1, verses 21 to 24. He says, "...for to me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. And if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. (laughs) I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so that's his that's his choice. He is going to stay in the body because it will mean fruitful service for the believers. But if God were to call him home, I'm ready. He'd say, I'm ready. Let's go. One of the uh, musicians uh, that I listen to from time to time is Sarah Groves. She's uh, from Minnesota and has written a lot of the contemporary Christian music too. And She has a song that's a classic Minnesota understatement of things. You know how when you ask a Minnesotan, you know how they're doing, and they go, not so bad, you know, or comments like that. Well, she writes this about heaven. She says, you know, that I don't know everything about heaven and what awaits us in the future. But I know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And from what I know of Him, that must be pretty good. Must be pretty good. That to me is a classic understatement of what is awaiting us. It's not just pretty good. It's going to be very, very good to be with our Lord. The Bible uses the word sleep to describe death. And for the believer, it is like falling asleep. You fall asleep and you wake up, you transition from this life to the next pilgrim's progress that classic described it like going through a river where it's a little scary to walk out into that river yes it is death is scary on this side to walk into that river but christian walks into that river and when he does and he finds himself going under he finds it to be solid ground and the moment he goes under the water he's coming out the other side and there are people waiting to greet him and to bring him into the celestial kingdom the celestial city it's firm ground. It's good ground. And God has His messengers, His angels who minister to the believers, who take us into His presence. When the Bible uses the word sleep to describe uh, what is to come, there is no soul sleep that some have described it. By soul sleep, some mean that there is a period of where we are unconscious in the grave. No, the Bible teaches we go immediately into God's presence. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. We go immediately. Or we are not sleeping in the grave somehow. There is also no limbo or purgatory. Those things are not found in Scripture. Now, I know the Catholic Church has taught those, but that's more of tradition than it is Scripture. There's no second chance for the believer or the unbeliever in terms of, you know, can we make some things up or have a do-over here? No, there's not. Sadly, when an unbeliever dies, their souls go immediately to eternal punishment. They go immediately to eternal punishment. There is a great gulf that separates the two and you can't go from one to the other. So Jesus taught in the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. The Bible also does not teach annihilation of unbelievers. Some have thought and speculated or thought maybe that's a more merciful way to look at this, or maybe that's a better way to look at this, that the souls of unbelievers are annihilated. They cease to exist, but the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus talked about that day when he will sit as Lord and as judge and he will sh- separate the sheep from the goats. In Matthew 25, verse 46, he talks about those who are believers will go on into eternal life. And those who do not believe will go on into eternal punishment. And the word eternal is the same Greek word to describe both. That's a horrible, horrible future to think about for those who do not know Christ. But the Bible teaches that our sin against God is so great that apart from Christ's death on the cross, there is no payment that can be made that is sufficient to cover our sins. Only Christ's death on the cross can pay the penalty for what we have done. And the Bible says that it is appointed for men to die once And after that comes the judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chance. There's no other opportunity again to make this up or do things over. That's why what we do in this life is so very, very important. And it's why we as Christians are doing our very best to bring the gospel to those who have never heard or to take it to the ends of the earth so that all men have the opportunity to hear and come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Thirdly, what happens when we die? In the future, we will stand before the Lord to give an account for our life. This is the Bema. The judgment seat of Christ. And we see Paul write about this in verses 9 and 10 when he said, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The Bema. The judgment seat of Christ. The word bema is just the Greek word. It means judgment seat, and that's why we uh, call it that. But it is so significant, this future day that is coming, when we, all of us, will give an account for our life individually before the Lord. There's going to be nobody else standing there with you. It is you, and it's Christ. And we saw a very powerful, dramatic portrayal of that just a few weeks ago when we had Charlie Schaller here to give a dramatic presentation of the Bema. If you have not seen that, borrow a CD from someone, a DVD, or order it, or get it, because it is well worth watching. I think we've had about a hundred of those DVDs sold in the last few weeks um, because it was so significant in your life and in mine. In Paul's day, everyone knew what a Bema seat looked like. You can actually go on the web if you want. You can type in Bama Seat, Corinth. Bama Seat at Corinth. And you can see the archaeological ruins of a Bama Seat. It was a raised platform where the judge would sit. And the accused would be brought before him in this courtyard standing below. And the judge was there and you were standing below. It was intimidating. Meant to be Intimidating. Jesus Christ stood before the famous seat of Pontius Pilate when Pilate gave the verdict that he was to be sentenced to death. He was to be crucified. Paul stood before the Bama seat of Gallio in Acts chapter 18 when there were those who were upset about what Paul was doing in Achaia, in that area of Corinth and the surrounding area, and they brought him before the Bama seat. And in that case, Gallio threw the case out. He said, This sounds like a Jewish dispute to me. I don't need to deal with it. You guys settle it yourself. And he let Paul go. But people knew what a Bama seat was. And they knew how serious it was to take this. And the Bible says that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. For the believer, it is not a judgment for salvation, but for reward and commendation. When we trust Christ, His blood covers our sins, and that is paid for. Romans eight one says, There is therefore now no commendation condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our guilt, our sins have been atoned for. That payment has been made. But there is still this review of our life and our deeds, our actions. And it is before this one who is the perfect judge who has all knowledge, full knowledge of everything that's happened in our life. There's no speculation. There's no hearing of other witnesses. There's no guessing about this at all. Hebrews four thirteen says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You know, and I, th- I think about what will that day be like to stand before Jesus and to have His eyes look at us. That penetrating gaze. I remember as a little kid, you know, if I did something that was wrong and my mom or my dad would call me in, you know, I had done something, I knew I was guilty and I'm standing there and they're about this much taller than me, you know, and I'm looking at them and I don't want to look them in the eye. I mean, I just somehow, especially with my mom, I felt like she just knew exactly what I was thinking and I kind of wanted to avoid eye contact and that because I was guilty and I'd be punished for something when I misbehaved. I can't imagine. It's going to be like to stand before Jesus and have him see and understand everything. I like the way Michael Card describes it in his music, though, to say how wonderful it will be to look into our judge's face and see a Savior there. To see this one who loves us and gave his life for us. He's our judge but he is also our Savior. And 1 Corinthians 3 describes what's going to happen on that day when God will test the quality of each man's work. 1 Corinthians 3, if we had more time, we'd go there and pick that apart too and look at it, but that'll have to be another message. But basically in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that each man has the opportunity to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And what we build with will either be like wood, hay, and stubble, and He'll put a match to it. And if it's not been done for Christ or in a way that honors Him, He's going to put a match to it and it's going to be burned. If what we build with has been done as unto the Lord and we have used our gifts and our time in a way to serve Him, it's going to be like building with gold and silver and precious stones. And it will last. And the fire of that judgment will reveal the quality of each man's work. We build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. There's no merit here. We're not trying to earn our salvation. This isn't about salvation. This is about how we have lived as believers and what we have done. This is about stewardship. Charlie Schaller made that clear in that drama, I thought, very well in terms of how it was portrayed. We were given... A certain amount of time, a certain amount of life on this earth. We had opportunities to study and learn and hear the Scriptures. We had opportunities to serve in a church. We were given vast amounts of wealth. When you think of America, I mean, we're in the top 1% of all the people who have ever lived in all of history in terms of the wealth that we have. What are we going to do with that? What do we do with that? And how do we use it? We can take earthly mammon and turn that into eternal reward if we will use those gifts in light of eternity. Everything that we do, everything that we do is an opportunity to serve the Lord and to give Him honor and glory. The way we live in terms of our homes, our marriage, our family, raise our children, do our work, be faithful, be honest. All those things count they make a difference in our world just humbly living for christ and being a witness for him but we are to use those opportunities then to think about how can we advance the cause of the gospel how can we support missionaries how can we be a part of the work of the church to make a difference in our community so that more and more people might come to know christ in the future we will stand before jesus and give an account for all of those things. And sometimes people ask, well, if salvation is by grace, why is this a judgment of works? Why is he looking at our deeds, what we have done? That's because it is impossible to separate trusting God from obeying God. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty one that whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. It's not the person who says, I love God, and then goes out and lives differently. It's not the person who says, well, you know, I go to church, and then that enough? You know, just putting in my time and then live like you want. It's not the person who says, okay, I heard this, and then, but my money's mine to do whatever I want to do with. No, it's the person who hears God's Word and obeys them. That's the one who loves Him. You can't separate trusting God from obeying God. In fact, if you think about it, every time we disobey God, it's really because we don't trust him. I mean, we disobey God, you know, in areas of our life because we just flat out don't trust him. We think we know a better way to do this, or we we understand this better, or there's a reason like we can't give. Uh, Because, you know, we don't trust that God can provide for us. There's a reason we don't use our our time in the way that He wants us to use our time because we think this is going to be more fun or better serving us. And we don't understand the blessing, the joy, the reward that comes from walking with God and giving Him our all. When we do take those steps of faith and we see God work and answer prayer, we see the joy of helping another come to know Christ, or we see the joy of service and the fruit that comes from that, man, it is great. And there's a taste of that that comes, that warms our heart, that encourages us to continue to do it more. Obedience is the proof of our faith. And if there's no fruit, how can there be a genuine faith? How can there be a genuine faith? One day, God's work in us will be revealed for all the world to see. And oh, the joy it will be if on that day Jesus will come to you and come to me and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And so Paul writes in verse 9 that we make it our goal to please him in everything. We make it our goal to please him in everything. My question to you this morning is, what will you do in response to this scripture? What will you do? Is there anything you need to change? Is there anything that you need to kind of work at more as a result of understanding that there is a day coming when you will stand before our Lord to give an account? I can tell you in my own life, in my spiritual growth, when I was learning about these things back in those years in college, when I got it, these middle passages of Second Corinthians changed my life. They changed my life. They changed what I was going to do with my life, my career, or what I was thinking about. It changed everything. And I think about, you know, next week, one of the verses we're going to look at that always sticks out of my mind is Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. He gave His all for me. How can I do anything less but give my all for Him? When you get it, it changes your life. It changes everything that you do. And when you understand what Paul is saying is about to come for the believer, oh man, we have a great hope. We have the hope of eternal life, glorified body, and living with Christ on a new earth and that new heaven and earth when they become one. We have a great joy. We will be at home with Jesus and with those that we love. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 16 that in thy presence is fullness of joy. You can't be any happier than to be with Jesus. I mean, you just can't. You just can't physically find or experience anything that's greater than being in fellowship and in the presence of Jesus. And we also have an awesome responsibility to live for Jesus every single day. Now you know. Now you know what Scripture says. What will you do in response to this message? Let's pray. Father, as we come before your throne today, I pray that we would live our lives fully in light of eternity. All for Jesus, holding nothing back. Ready for that day when you will call us into your very presence. May the joy of that coming, may the joy of your return, and the joy of being reunited with believers just fill our hearts and give us that song in our heart and that desire to serve you and love you more and more. I pray this in your name. Amen.